Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart is joined again by our adjunct senior fellow, Alistair Roberts, to discuss the text for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. Those texts are Ezekiel 2, 1 through 5, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, and the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. We really hope that you're edified and sharpened by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart. I'm here today with Brian Motes, and we're also connected with Alistair Roberts, who is uh, talking with us from Durham. Glad to have you back, Alistair, after a couple of weeks' hiatus. Thank you. You've been teaching in the States, as I understand, over the past couple of weeks. I hope that went well. Yes. Had a very good time in the U.S. Thank you. Um, spent some time working with the Davenant Institute for their summer program. And every year, there are a couple of summer programs where a group of students get together for intense time reading and studying um, in the middle of beautiful surroundings in South Carolina. So this year, we are going through a series of texts to learn the nature of Christian wisdom. And so over the period of a week, I think we went through about um, eight different texts or something like that, and then had lengthy discussion and interaction on the subject. It was very stimulating and a great time of friendship and fun and also deep exploration in God's truth. Yeah, you mentioned to me when we had a conversation last week or recently that uh, you had you had um, gone through a book by is it Emmanuel Falk? Is that the name? No, it was um, Pierre Marie Mna. I was the one that came up with Falk. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, tell me, tell our listeners about about him and what you uh, what you all read together. Yes, the book that we read together is one of a trilogy of books that he has. The book we read was God's Seen in the Mirror of the World, which is exploring, um, I suppose, very much classical um, understandings of the existence of God, but explored from a more phenomenological ang- angle, so from our perspective upon reality. And so he explores Aquinas's five arguments for the existence of God, but presents those as a uh, means of a way in which we can look at reality and see God reflected within that. So whether that's the inability of creatures to achieve their natures by themselves, or whether it's the inabilities of inability of creatures to secure their own existence, or inability of creatures to um, achieve the perfection of, or the working out of the potential of their being, or whether it's the case of the perfections of God that are gestured to in a weak and failing way on the account on the part of the creation that points upwards towards something that excels something that exceeds them in majesty and glory and beauty and goodness and then finally to the relationship between things and their final their final end uh, or final cause and in each of these ways we can have a sense in the poverty of reality, it's gesturing towards God's riches. And so it was a very rewarding study of that, and then going on from there into um, the way of negation 
um, the understanding of um, of analogy and how scripture reveals God's truth and God's character. So it was a very exciting way to train us to look at the world in a way that enables us to see God within it. Um, not just at the end of a series of arguments, but a challenge to look at reality differently. So it sounds like the thrust of those arguments is that the very contingency and fragility of the world is a hint that there's uh, something that's non-contingent and non-fragile. Is that the kind of is yes, that the kind of thrust of so. the whole? Yeah. Before we started the podcast, we were discussing what how we might approach that, but that actually gives us a way of getting into at least one of the passages that we're talking about this week. This is, after all, a lectionary podcast, so we should talk about the, the Bible a little bit. One of the readings, as I mentioned at the beginning, is 2 Corinthians 12, uh, which is part of, we've been talking about 2 Corinthians for a while now, but it's part of Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry, and he defends it on the basis of, um, uh, largely on the basis of ca- the counterintuitive fact that he shares in the sufferings of Christ. He has apostolic authority and he has apostolic status, not because he is moving from one triumph to the next, but he is his uh, uh, his sufferings, the opposition that he faces, um, the poverty that he undergoes. All of this is uh, is uh, uh, proof that he is sharing in the sufferings of Christ and that he's an, an apostle of the crucified Christ. So it sounds like um, at least there's some distant analogy between what you were describing um, and what what Paul's getting at here with the various, uh, what you called earlier, the various paradoxes that uh, Paul uh, uh, Paul is using to describe his ministry. Yes, that the very poverty of reality is that which bears witness to God's riches. I find it striking just looking through the book of Second Corinthians, how much there is an emphasis upon these paradoxes, and whether that's weakness or strength or the paradox of poverty and riches, as we see in chapter 8. Um, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And this relationship between poverty and riches or weakness and power, they're not these two terms aren't det- can't be detached from each other. It's not just a straightforward opposition as we would tend to see it. It's a very, I suppose the paradox is really grounded within the cross for, for Paul. I'd be interested to hear how you see this playing out. Yeah, and I think that's right, that the, the cross is the central paradox in which Paul is participating because the cross is a... It's the weakness of God that's being displayed in the cross. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's the weakness of God that proves itself more powerful than the strength of, uh, the strength of, cre- of creatures, the strength of human beings. So I think that, it's, you know, that paradox is there. And it, it also makes me think uh, there might be, a, again, a way of connecting this back to your initial discussion of the readings you were discussing, uh, readings you were doing with the Davenant Institute. Um, that that would suggest that the cross, contrary to what uh, the way that it's developed in some Christian theology, the cross as a contradiction of uh, the way things normally go. You have the world as it is, God as He is, and then He denies Himself 
nearly denies him himself and his nature in order to go to the cross. In contrast to that, it seems like Paul's suggesting and, and uh, what the, the readings were suggesting is that the cross is a revelation of, of the paradox that's at the heart of all things, that um, it, it's precisely in, in, uh, in weakness that God, uh, that God displays his power. Or you could say in the fragility of the world, the, fragili- the fragility of the world, the contingency of the world, is also simultaneously a display of the glory of God. Uh, and that, that combination of, uh, that paradoxical co- combination is uh, expressed most pointedly in the cross and uh, in Second Corinthians in Paul's participation in it. I think that's exactly right. And the, the relationship of poverty and weakness towards God is precisely that within which his strength and his riches can be made known. In Within chapter 8, one of the things that jumps out, and chapter 9 as well, is the way in which God's giving is something that we are given to participate in. But there's a char- there's again a paradoxical character to that, that to receive the gift of giving, um, God's gift with him, you have to simultaneously be you have to be opened up to receive something, but the receiving is done in the act of giving, of in the act of passing it on to someone else, becoming a channel for it. And likewise, the posture of poverty and weakness is a, a sort of an emptying, a kenosis of the creation so that it can actually become the site of God's presence and his riches and his glory. And so rather than seeing these things as opposed to each other, it's that tight paradoxical connection that is at the very heart of the gospel and in that way it reveals something at the heart of creation itself that the gift of creation is one that can only be received with a hand that's held open mm-hmm. yeah it, it it reminds me of a comment that chesterton makes in some connection it's probably in orthodoxy where he talks about the he's talking i think about the trinity and the paradoxical tangle that's at the center of all reality that actually clarifies what reality is rather than having clarity at the center and everything else tangled uh, christianity confesses the tangle at the at the center of all things this paradox of the cross the paradox of the god who is one and three uh, those things are at the center of reality and that actually makes make that that makes sense of the world that we the world that we that we live in and the fact that that paradox is not just a bare metaphysical truth, but is a site of Christ's presence. Um, it's a paradox that's bound up in a person and in um, the event of the cross. I think that is something that enables us to inhabit that paradox in a way that we would not were it just a bare metaphysical fact about reality. The, the, the particular reading we have for this week, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, begins with uh, the paradoxes between exaltation by revelation and the weakness uh, that uh, Paul uh, Paul says he will boast in. It's, he won't boast in the uh, the surpassing revelation that he's received, but rather he'll boast in the, the weakness of his ministry. But he describes this in the third person, describes this experience of visions and revelations in the Lord. Somebody caught up to the, to the third heaven. Um, he seems to be talking about someone else. And when I was uh, lecturing on Revelation, and sometime in the last couple of years, I did a lot of re- lecturing on Revelation, and uh, somebody asked if this could, in fact, be Paul describing the experience of John 
in uh, Revelation, which would make Revelation a very early, uh, a very early part of the New Testament. I don't think that works because Paul does go on to say that he himself uh, has been given the thorn in, in order to. Uh, it's because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations to keep me from exalting myself. He's been given a thorn in the flesh. So he, even though he's describing it the third person, he seems to be talking about his own experience. So you have this this inexpressible, this exalting, ecstatic uh, experience of being caught up into heaven, uh, and yet uh, that is, um, I mean, it's as the Lord is uh, gives him uh, whatever the thorn in the flesh is, he uh, it's there to uh, keep him from exalting himself, so that maintains the paradox of weakness as the as the mechanism or the the channel for. Uh, showing the strength and power of God. His description of his prayer for the the um, thing to be removed, it seems very much to be a sort of Gethsemane-type situation that Paul is presenting himself within. To what extent do you think he's explicitly developing the themes of Gethsemane within this particular passage? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. That's really uh, that's really interesting. That you're talking about the the three prayers, for example. Yeah. Um, the answer is essentially, uh, no, this cup is not going to pass from you, but rather my strength, my grace is going to be sufficient. My power will be made perfect in weakness. Uh, yeah, that uh, it makes sense that there would be a um, he w- he would be directly connecting himself with or or uh, drawing an analogy between his own sufferings and. And Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. Did you have other more more specific thoughts on that? Not much beyond the fact that the weakness and strength um, connection is something that's drawn out in the following chapter in a way that's very closely related to Christ's death. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Yeah, that's 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 really helpful. Couple of a uh, couple of comments on uh, details of the passage. He talks about being caught up to the third heaven, and uh, often a puzzle: what uh, what exactly is the third heaven? Are we looking at kind of a Jewish apocalyptic model where there are there's a series of heavens? Maybe he's not caught up to the highest heaven. Maybe he's just caught up to like the third out of nine, perhaps. Uh, maybe there's um, I, I, my my sense. My guess is that the third heaven is the the heaven. Uh, in which God is enthroned, the heaven that John enters uh, at the beginning of Revelation. And the other two heavens would be the firmament heavens, which are the visible heavens of the sky. And the the first heavens, I think for Jewish mind, the first heavens would be the the earthly heavens of the temple. And uh, so there, there is a, a uh, you can be drawn up into the first heaven uh, by uh, worship at the temple, the second heaven is the heaven that we see above us, the dome of the sky, and then the third heaven, into which Paul says he's been caught up, is the is the throne room of God, where again John also is taken up. Where, as we'll see uh, in a few moments, uh, it's the it's similar to the vision that Ezekiel sees at the beginning of his prophecy. So, um, before before I get your reaction to that, let me let me make a. Make a comment about the the other phrase that uh, is a puzzle in the passage is the thorn in the flesh, often taken as a besetting uh, physical uh, ailment. Paul is humbled by having some kind of physical uh, suffering. Um, I had a pastor friend many years ago 
who suggested that the thorn in the flesh was uh, probably a person. Um, thorns are uh, in uh, thorns are part of the curse uh, in Genesis three. Thorns and thistles will come up from the ground, and the very next thing that we read about after the uh, the threat of thorns and thistles are, is the birth of Cain, who proves to be a, a thorn in the flesh of Abel. Uh, I think I think this pastor may have been speaking more from his own pastoral experience than from exegetical conclusions, but he suggested that the the thing that was that most plagued him and most humbled him in his pastoral pastoral ministry. Uh, was not physical weakness, but rather um, continuous conflicts and and strife with other people within the church. So um, I think that that seemed like that would fit with. I'm not sure that that's what Paul's referring to, but it it uh, fits with uh, the biblical imagery of thorns. It might fit also with the idea that the thorn in the flesh is a me- messenger from Satan, that is a messenger from the accuser or the the slanderer. Um, might be talking not about some kind of physical ailment, but about a person. Yes, my um, inclination has to has been to take this as some sort of physical thing, but I've not given it enough thought, and um, that proposal does seem to make sense. I find one of the things that always strikes me about this passage is the way in which the agency of Satan is so pronounced within it, but yet so evacuated of its force by the end of these verses, that it's very much within the framework of Paul's weakness and Christ's strength and power within his situation. And then Satan almost seems to disappear from the picture. The fact that it is his or the messenger that he has sent or the thorn that he has placed in Paul's side, but he seems to disappear from the picture. And it's similar in, in many respects to um, New Testament accounts of the cross, where it's very clear that the agency of the Jews and the Romans and these other figures are all involved in this particular event. But ultimately, in the highest or primary level of analysis, those factors aren't as prominent in the same way. Rather, it becomes very much a matter of Christ's power and weakness in his weakness and God's capacity to overcome the world in him. Right. So Satan is, um, Satan is a, uh, a messenger, not in control of the situation. Uh, uh, the, the other, uh, analogy that it calls to mind, I think is, uh, the role of Satan in the book of Job. Satan isn't as the Lord's instrument it works only by permission of Yahweh, but is the Lord's instrument for buffeting Job kind of as the same literary dynamic that uh, you just described where Satan is in a prominent position and uh, is able to, he gets permission to uh, to afflict Job at the beginning of the book. When you get to the end of Job, Satan doesn't reappear. He just, uh, it's not that he's, it's not that he reappears and is driven from heaven or that he reappears and he is forced to kind of slink away, but he just doesn't show up at all. Just uh, loses his role in the story by the end of it. Yes, that's always something that has hit me about this passage. Um, the fact that Christ's power and weakness eclipses and takes up into itself the um, discordant notes, as it were, of Satan. The description of Paul's uh, experience of 
the revelation Paul receives in Second Corinthians uh, is one way of connecting that with the Old Testament reading for this seventh Sunday after Pentecost, uh, which is part of the commissioning, the call and commissioning of Ezekiel. It's the first few verses of Ezekiel chapter two, and it's plopped right in. the 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 reading is kind of extracted from the middle of a lengthy section that goes through basically the first three chapters of Ezekiel. Um, begins with the the appearance of God's glory in this storm cloud. Um, there's a detailed, the most detailed description we have in the Bible of the interior of this cloud and the, the creatures that make up the cloud. Uh, and then the beginning of chapter 2, Ezekiel is commissioned to be a prophet to the rebellious people of Israel. At the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, he's given a book, so he's both commissioned verbally and then he also... Uh, eats the scroll that's given to him, and then speaks the words that are uh, that are written on the scroll. He internalizes it and then speaks it out. So the the verses, the few verses that are given for the reading, are set in that larger context of Ezekiel experiencing a an exaltation into the presence of the glory, uh, similar to what Paul experiences. One other note about the overall structure of Ezekiel. Um, this is drawing this from uh, Thomas Renz, who written a book on the rhetorical, the, the rhetoric of the book of Ezekiel, and uh, who was gracious enough to connect with our uh, Theopolis fellows this last year and give a lecture on Ezekiel. But he points out that the, the phrase uh, visions of God, which begins chapter one, is used three times in the book of Ezekiel, and you have three great visions that kind of s- sketch out the, the plot of the book. Uh, you have the vision of the glory and the commissioning of Ezekiel at the beginning of the book in the first three chapters. The next time you have the phrase visions of God is found in chapter 8, and that's a vision also of the glory, but it's a vision of the glory departing from the temple. That uh, vision includes Ezekiel exploring the temple and seeing all the images and idols that are in the temple. And then the final vision, uh, the final section that's uh, that uh, where the phrase visions of God is used is at the end of the book in chapters 40 through 48. So you have... Ezekiel, Ezekiel encounters the glory of God in Babylon. Ezekiel sees the glory depart from the temple in chapters 8 through 11. And then Ezekiel sees the glory of God return to the temple, return to this new visionary temple at the end of the book in Ezekiel 40 to 48. So those, those visions kind of set out the, the large plot of Ezekiel. Obviously, there's a lot more goes on in Ezekiel, but at least that gives a kind of feel for the overall shape of the book and how the glory, the visions of glory fit into it. Do you have any thoughts on... The fact within these verses, this is the first time within the book of Ezekiel that Ezekiel is addressed as son of man. And that's a recurring expression that's used in reference to Ezekiel. What weight should that term be given, that expression be given? And how does it relate to Christ as the son of man? Well, a couple of thoughts. One is the, uh, the first time he's, dis- he's addressed as son of man is the verse verse of chapter 2. And that comes right on the heels of his response to the vision of the glory. Uh, Right at the end of chapter 1, When I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And then he spoke to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, that I may speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. It's the same kind of experience that John has when John sees the vision of Jesus in his glory at the beginning of Revelation. He falls down as a dead man, he says at the feet of Jesus, and then Jesus touches him and he raises him up and then gives him a commission to write to the churches of Asia. 
So there's, there's a kind of death and resurrection moment there. He falls on his face. He's brought up, and Ezekiel says he's, he's brought up to a standing position by the Spirit. He's brought up from the ground by the Spirit. And then he gets this commissioning. This prophetic commissioning is post-mortem. He's gone through this death experience. The Spirit has given him new life. So if you if you look at if you think about this, the the address son of man in that context the ultimate root goes back to the second chapter of Genesis where Adam is uh, brought up from the dust of the ground the Lord breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and he beca- becomes a living being he's caused to stand up by the breath of God Ezekiel is like a new Adamic figure who's gone down to the dust and then raised up again and uh, is. Uh, addressed as son of man. He's the son of Adam, an image at least of the last Adam. Uh, so that I think in the context that it makes sense to put it into that, um, put it back into Genesis 2 and to see him as a kind of glorified Adam uh, who now is raised up to prophetic status and given this commission. Is there any relationship with the son of man as in the prophecy of Daniel as an eschatological or some sort of heavenly figure. This is this has been a, a regular theme of uh, uh, Jim Jordan's work on Daniel over the last number of years. Uh, defends it, for example, in his book on uh, in his commentary on Daniel. He thinks that Son of Man in the first instance in Daniel seven is a reference to Ezekiel. Uh, that he's especially in his canonical position. You have the uh, the book of Ezekiel where I don't remember how many times Ezekiel's addresses Son of Man, but it's Dozens. I don't think it's quite a hundred, but it's dozens of times. Eighty sometimes. I think he's addressed as son of man. And then in the very next book of the Bible, you have this figure of the son of man, who's one like the son of man, who's rising up, receiving the glory, uh, receiving the kingdom of the beasts. And uh, Jim has suggested that that's in in a, in his first instance is referring back to Ezekiel. That uh, Ezekiel is the again. I, I think that the the notion is that the Ezekiel is the, Ezekiel is kind of the model of the of the last Adam receiving, uh, receiving the kingdom, and uh, so there'd be a, there'd be a link there. But I th- again, I think the, the ultimate root in both cases, both of Ezekiel and I think especially in Daniel seven, it's clear that the Son of Man is an Adamic figure, uh, who receives dominion, who tames the beasts, uh, who takes dominion over the earth, and uh, uh, so it's picking up on the Ezekiel language, but then ultimately pointing ahead to Jesus as the last Adam. Uh, let me make one other, uh, point out one other thing about the beginning of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 2. This isn't quite as dismal a commissioning as Isaiah, as Isaiah gets. I mean, Isaiah is sent to a rebellious, hard-hearted people. He's sent to a people who can't hear him, who aren't going to be able to see the enacted prophecies that he acts out before them, uh, who are, aren't going to respond to him. The Lord doesn't quite say that to Ezekiel, but he does say, you're going to a stubborn people, you're going to an obstinate people. This is a generation like the hard-hearted generation that came out of Egypt, and they may not listen to Ezekiel. So it's not a real encouraging commission, but at another level, maybe a deeper level, the very fact that the Lord is commissioning a prophet to go to these people is a sign of his continuing care for Israel. Uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't abandoned Judah as long as he keeps talking to them. And as long as he keeps sending prophets, that means that he's, uh, he's not finished with them. The way that they'll be restored to God uh, is going to be through dissolution and a reconstitution, through a death and resurrection. Um, they're not going to repent at Ezekiel's preaching. They're not going to repent at 
the preaching of Jeremiah back in Jerusalem, but um, they're still going to be restored, uh, and the word of the Lord is going to be effective, even though, uh, even through even through the grave, they're going to be able to, they're going to be restored to life. Uh, so, but but I think the it's easy for us to to forget what a what an act of mercy it is for the Lord to just keep talking. the the real The real terrifying possibility for Israel is that the Lord just goes silent, and He stops sending prophets, and He gives up on them. As long as He's sending prophets, that means that there's hope for their future. And also that they know that a prophet has been sent. Um, so, the end of verse five they will know that a prophet has been among them. That's a strong statement of God's. They will know that God has been speaking to them, however they respond. In the last few minutes, uh, uh, let's go on to the gospel reading, which is the beginning of Mark 6. Uh, we've been reading through portions of Mark through the first, um, through the first half of this year. Um, it says a couple of episodes. It's the Mark's account of Jesus' visit back to Nazareth and the response of the people of Jesus' hometown to his ministry. And then it's uh, the second part of the selection is Mark's account of the sending out of the Twelve. Let me just start with a comment on that last part. Um, Jesus uh, gathers the Twelve. He gives them authority over spirits. He gives them authority to uh, cast out demons. He gives them a, uh, it commissions them to preach. Uh, it's it's a fuller commissioning in Matthew's account, but the, the basic thrust of it is that the 12 are going to be carrying out the same ministry that Jesus has been carrying out. He's been preaching the gospel, the kingdom. They're going to do the same. He's been casting out demons. They're going to do the same. He's been healing, and they're going to heal. The mission of the 12 is the mission of Jesus expanded and carried out under his authority and in his power. And certainly there are discontinuities between this mission of the 12 and the mission of the church throughout the ages. But I also would want to stress the continuities that the mission of the church today is still, in a fundamental sense, the same as the mission of the Twelve, which is the mission of Jesus, now carried out in the power of his Spirit, now carried out by uh, those who are joined to him as his body. Uh, but it's the same mission. Um, the other, the other uh, point along those lines is the instruction about uh, how they're to care for themselves, they're not to take anything along, a staff, but no bread, no bag, no money. And what that, what that does is force the people who are recipients of their ministry to support them. Uh, they go to a town. Uh, they have only a staff. They start preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They start healing people. Uh, and uh, if that town wants them to continue to bring the kingdom there, then they need to open up. Uh, their purses, uh, their wallets, bring out the checkbook, you know, show hospitality and invite, invite the disciples in to, uh, uh, to stay. But it puts the burden on the people that receive their ministry to respond. And, and the, the sign that they're responding to the ministry is precisely in this uh, very concrete uh, transaction of giving, them, giving the apostles food and giving them a place to stay. If they don't do that, then they have a, haven't accepted the gospel of the kingdom, uh, and the apostles are going to move on. They're going to shake the dust of their feet, uh, dust off their feet, and uh, and move on to the next town. So, the, and again, uh, there's a difference between 
what the twelve are doing and what the church is doing. But there's a sense in which even there, there's a continuity uh, where the church is still uh, and ministers of the church, those who carry the gospel of the kingdom, are still at the uh, at the mercy, as it were, of the hospitality of those that they minister to, uh, and the reception of the gospel is uh, takes the form of showing hospitality uh, to uh, the ministers who bring the message. On that front, I think it's worth also connecting this with the Old Testament examples of tests of hospitality given to cities marked out for judgment. So we see in the case of Egypt, in the case of Sodom, in the case of um, Jericho and other such places, that there's an encounter with the angel of the Lord, and then there's a visit of two figures to a city where there is a test of hospitality. Will they be received? If the house receives them, that house is blessed. And if the city rejects and shows a lack of hospitality, that city is marked out for destruction. And so the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah in Ezekiel is upon committing abomination, but also the fact that they did not show hospitality. Um, And I think this is an extension of that principle, that Christ comes as one who depends upon people's hospitality. He's eating at other people's tables, not inviting them in for um, food at his table, primarily. And then later on, we see in Matthew the great judgment scene of chapter 25, the sheep and the goats, that um, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me, that there is in the reception of Christ's messengers, the ones sent out by him, um, that is going to be the test of um, whether a city or a nation is accepted or not and how it fares in the judgment to come. Yeah, I think that's uh, that same context is uh, is evident in uh, Jesus' statements. Those, you know, if you see receive a prophet and receive a prophet's reward, if you give a cup of water to a righteous man, you'll see for righteous man's reward. It's a way of hospitality is a way of um, embodying the proper response to Jesus. And we see this in other in other places in the Gospels. When uh, I think this is the Within the within the context of Luke, this is kind of the thrust of the Mary Martha story. Uh, the The issue there is an, is an issue of hospitality. The question is, which of the two women is receiving Jesus? Is it uh, do you receive Jesus by uh, bustling around, uh, making sure the dinner is ready, making sure that everything is prepared, but not actually listening to him <laughs> or do you receive Jesus by sitting at his feet and, and receiving and, and actually, you know, listening, receive the person of Jesus. Um, so there's a, I think that's one example of many. And it, Luke is uh, full of this kind of scene where proper response to Jesus takes the form of receiving Jesus uh, and sometimes receiving him and welcoming him, welcoming him to a table, but more importantly, receiving Jesus by, uh, attending to him by listening to him. Uh, you made a point that before we began about the the contrast between this commission uh, and the later commission where they're told to take swords with them. Yes, and the provision that they make in that particular case, um, bringing money and sword and all these sorts of things, suggests that Jesus is explicitly contrasting um, and actually, he does mention it in the context, explicitly contrasting that earlier commission with the nature of the commission that they will face after his death and resurrection. 
Right, right. The first part of Mark 6 is about Jesus' uh, ministry in Nazareth. Um, so again, something that uh, we find more details about in other, in other places. If, if it's in fact the same moment in Jesus' ministry, it could be that Jesus went to, his, went to Nazareth a number of times and d- got different sorts of reception at different times. In, uh, in, uh, in uh, verse 4, the, the kind of the theme of this, this account and of other accounts of Jesus' reception in his hometown, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among the relatives in in his own household, Jesus is despised by the people of his of Nazareth, which is part of a a regular critique polemic against the resistance of blood relation, the, the resistance of family to the gospel. Jesus returns to this pretty regularly, warning that uh, it's necessary to to hate father and mother in order to be his disciple. You have to let the dead bury their dead be willing to renounce even the closest of family and fleshly ties in order to follow Jesus. And this, um, his reception in Nazareth is part of that, that overall theme. We have this on a number of occasions in the Gospels where Jesus speaks in a way that relativizes or at least challenges some of the claims that are made on account of um, ties with our biological or natural families whether that's the dead burying the dead or who are my who are my brothers and sister and father and, and mother. Um, these examples suggest that the sort of community that Jesus is forming is one that stands with greater claims um, or the mission that he's forming is one that stands with greater claims than those of the family. But also the bringing of a sword into the household. Um, how can we speak of this in a way that it really acknowledges the force of the, the message and does justice to that, while also doing justice to the other biblical themes that seem to affirm the family and the household? Yeah, I think that the... Um I think there'd be various aspects to trying to harmonize that those those different uh, those different things. I think you're right that the main the main thrust of the of Jesus teaching has to do with uh, relativizing the family to the demands of the kingdom. At the same time, there's the promise that family relations uh, are going to become are, are will be transformed by the kingdom. I think of the last uh, one of the last promises of the Old Testament in Malachi that talks about the restoration of the uh, sons to their fathers and fathers to their sons. There's a a promise of harmony between the generations. In a prominent place in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, there's a description of the restoration of of marriage, of of husband and wife united in one flesh as Christ and the the church are united in one spirit. So there's a, at the same time, there's this, there's this uh, break from uh, the old family. There's this promise of a renewed family, and it 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 does seem like that's a that that's the uh, in a sense that's just a particular application of an of a general biblical pattern. The inclusion in the old covenant Israel requires a cutting off of the flesh. You cut off the old so that you can become part of a new family. In fact, in order to form a family, you have to uh, leave father and mother and cleave to your wife. You have to leave the family 
behind in order to form the new family of husband and wife. So there's always this cutting off of the old and and the formation of a new order. That's even within, you can say, the natural order of things, that's the case. And this is a kind of a heightened demand for that same kind of cutting off and uh, reunion. I guess the thrust of what I'm saying is that the those different aspects of uh, biblical teaching on family are ultimately harmonized by the promise that God is at work to restore human life, and that includes restoring family life. And even within a few chapters' time, you have the statement that um, no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father, sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Right, right. So there's, I mean, that's a, I think that's ultimately, what in the first instance is a promise of inclusion in the family of the church. How do you multiply those brothers and sisters? If you renounce the family of origin and you are included in the family of Jesus, then you immediately have all these kin kin connections with people who are part of that 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 community and that family. So yeah, there's a, there's a reconstitution of, or there's a there's a new kind of family uh, that's uh, gathered around Jesus. But that I think also is uh, gives a hope and it's a promise that that new family around Jesus will include members of your own blood family. Uh, that uh, your fam- the family itself will be transformed by that. And as you've mentioned, the emphasis upon leaving father and mother is partly something that relates to the process of marriage, a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife, but also it occurs in the context of prophetic call or call to discipleship. I think Abraham being a particularly notable example. And that cutting off from father and mother is not necessarily a complete renunciation of them or um, rejection of them but it's a reconstitution of oneself in relation to them that allows for the possibility of them being brought into that new reconstituted relationship. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.